Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems and what could be done to solve them. I'm Rob Wibland, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. Today, we're bringing you the final installment of a series of three conversations between Arden Kaler and our CEO, Ben Todd. In the last episode, they discussed what effective altruism is and isn't, and how to argue for it. And in this episode, they turn to what the effective altruism community most needs to have more impact. According to Ben, we can think of the effective altruism movement as having gone through several stages. Uh, in the first, more money to do things like pay staff and put on events uh, was the main bottleneck to making progress. In the second, it was talented people willing to work on whatever seemed most pressing. And in the third stage, which Ben thinks we're in right now, uh, the main bottlenecks might be organizational capacity, uh, infrastructure, uh, and management to help train people up, as well as specialist skills that people can put into practice now. Arden and Ben also cover the career implications of those three stages, uh, the ability to save money to use in future, uh, and the possibility that someone else would do your job in your absence. They focused on analyzing these concepts within the context of the effective altruism community and its ideas, though they do think that they apply more broadly. Just a warning that this conversation includes more jargon than usual, so if you're not familiar with the effective altruism community and its ideas, uh, it might not be the episode for you. But given that this is an episode focused on EA, uh, this is the perfect opportunity to let you know that the 2020 Effective Altruism Survey uh, just opened. If you're involved with the Effective Altruism community or sympathetic to its ideas, uh, it's a great thing to fill out because it operates as something like a census uh, for the community, uh, helping to figure out what people believe about how to do the most good and what they're up to. All the questions are optional, uh, but it asks about who you are, uh, how you got involved, how helpful you found the community, uh, your views about what's most impactful, uh, and a couple of other things. So if you'd like to make sure that your views, uh, projects, and experiences so far are included, click through the link in the show notes and uh, go fill it out. Oh, and uh, just a reminder that even though he is our CEO, these are chat episodes. So the opinions that Ben expresses uh, shouldn't be taken as official 80,000 hours positions or uh, anything like that. All right, without further ado, I bring you Arden and Ben. Hi, listeners. I'm Arden. I'm a researcher at 80,000 Hours. Hi, and I'm Ben, the CEO of 80,000 Hours. So Ben has thought a lot about what kinds of careers, what kinds of work people can do to make the most difference they can on the world's most pressing problems. So back in 2015, Ben, you wrote an article saying that you thought a lot of the most pressing problems in the world were talent constrained as opposed to money constrained. So what did you mean by that and how have things changed, if at all? So yeah, let's, I guess, maybe zoom out a bit and talk about what is a talent constraint. So you can kind of think different global problems could be held back by different bottlenecks. Or like, you can kind of think if you add a unit of some type of resource to a problem, how much progress and extra value gets created. And so then you can kind of ask, like, would an extra unit of money or an extra unit of like a person working on the problem or maybe even like more abstract things like maybe an area is constrained by ideas or like political capital, or we can kind of think about all these kinds of resources. And because they can't be perfectly converted into each other, you can end up with a situation where like a problem is more constrained by one than another. And so if, if we want to have a big impact, we want to be trying to ask which resources are most constraining different global problems, and then we can try and uh, get those resources to those problems. So just to clarify, when you talk about resources constraining different problems, you mean like solving those problems is like, we can't solve the problem because we don't have enough of a certain kind of resource. Yeah. Okay. So talent constraint, what does that mean in particular? So if a problem is talent constrained, that would mean that getting like an extra year of labor on that problem 
would have an unusually big impact compared to one of the other resources. And we most naturally compare it to money because money is easily quantifiable. And so one way to make the comparison very concrete would be, okay, so imagine one scenario is you earn to give and then donate to the problem, or another scenario is that you work on the problem. And then the question is, which one has the bigger impact? And if it's like the working one, then it's quite natural to say that it's talent constrained. Yeah, that's like not a perfect definition, but it gives us a rough idea of what we might be talking about. And that's like kind of assuming that, you know, somehow you're like just as good at earning to give or something as you would be at at doing the direct work on the problem. Yeah. So this is a big problem with introducing the term talent constraints is there is no single talent out there. Everyone has different skills and strengths. And so it's like better to think of it as, well, there's all kinds of different skills that people have and different problems are constrained most by different skill sets or profiles of people rather than kind of talent in general. Okay. Yeah. I mean, economists just, they make models where there's like labor and capital and those are the only two inputs, but in the real world, it's way more messy than that. Okay. So when you said that you thought the most pressing problems were more talent constrained, or I guess like, or maybe constrained by the people being able to contribute certain kinds of skills, can you give a specific example of, you know, when you think that was the case? Well, so what I'm trying to say is it's better not to think of things as being like generally talent constrained or not. It's better to instead think in terms of the particular types of profiles of person that are constraining different problems. And then, yeah, we would say for like most of the problems that we focus on, I mean, we partly selected them precisely for this, are very constrained by certain types of profile of person. Right. Because obviously our role is to try to get people with those those skills uh, working on those problems or get people to develop those skills and work on those problems. Yes. So one we've given an example of in the past is in AI safety research, there's lots of groups which have a lot of money, like such as DeepMind and OpenAI, and even nonprofits in the space have extra funding to hire people. And there's lots of like academic positions these days. So if you're kind of good enough at doing that, that career path, there's lots of groups that would fund you. And it's kind of a, anyone above that threshold can usually get a job. So that seems like in that case, it's uh, it's very constrained by someone who has the skills at a sufficient level to do AI technical safety research. So in the case of AI safety, you know, you said before, they're not sort of perfectly fungible money and talent. Can you just give us a sense of like, why can't DeepMind just spend money to train people or recruit the best people in the world or, you know, whatever, in order to get people to staff its safety teams? Yeah, that's, it's a good question. I think one big factor is that it's pretty hard to do research into something unless you really care about the thing. And yeah, like partly you need to be really interested in the topic. But then I think in particular with something like AI safety research, people generally have the sense that someone who like, really, really cares about actually figuring out what will really help to make things safe, will be able to pick much more effective research topics than someone who's just like, well, I'm like intellectually interested in this thing and it's kind of in the area and I'm just going to like kind of work on that. And then the trouble is like by having more money, you can't kind of magically make people suddenly deeply care about existential risk or like AI alignment. I mean, you like you can a little bit because there's going to be people kind of on the margin and maybe they switch if it's easier to get a job in the area. Or but, like you you spend some money on educational campaigns to try to convince people that this is a really important issue. Yes. Yeah. And then, or you could run like an AI fellowship, which, you know, <laughs> Open Philanthropy has done. But generally these things take a while. 
So you can end up in a situation where there's a kind of temporary mismatch between how much funding is available and how many people have the right profile to take the thing. And in that period, it would be constrained by that skill profile. So I guess it sounds like this is partly because we think some of these issues are urgent, right? If we thought, if we had all the time in the world, maybe money would be really fungible or like we could spend in order to get the right profile of people later because, you know, you'd have a long time to get people interested in this stuff, get people educated in various ways. But because we want, you know, people to be working on this stuff in the next few years, it's much harder. Yes. The less time you have, the more you can get differences between different types of resources. Okay, so then what are the arguments that many of the most pressing problems are talent-constrained in particular? Yeah, all the, the problems that we focus on. So, yeah, I think we should probably stop using the word talent constraints. Okay. Because as, as I was saying, it's, it's too general. It's better to instead talk about a very specific needs, like specific types of personal skills or whatever, the, however you want to cash it out, the different problems need. And yeah, I think this has caused quite a bit of confusion. And so like one example of that is that like when people think about talent constraints, they tend to think of just like, oh, someone who's like generally talented, but doesn't have any kind of particular skills or particularly like unusual thing about them. They're just a kind of like generalist, useful person. And there's actually been a thing recently where I'd say like many of the problems we highlight are kind of not constrained by young generalists. They're more constrained by people with a particular bit of expertise and also people who are kind of like unusually motivated by these issues and have a kind of unusually effective altruist mindset and a couple of other things that are quite rare in general. Yeah, I guess the example that you gave earlier of like a AI technical safety researcher, it's like, I like to think that I have some talents, but it's not yes. like I can just turn that into AI technical safety research. Yes, exactly. And so kind of like one thing recently, just as an example of where I, I think this I saw this coming up is Open Philanthropy, when they did their recent recruitment round, said, in my view, perhaps the biggest overall lesson was that the pool of available and interested talent is quite strong. More than 100 applicants had very strong resumes and seemed quite aligned with our mission. And so then a lot of people took that to mean, okay, Open Philanthropy is not, not talent constrained anymore. So that but, I there was like the person running the recruiting round. Yeah, sorry, this is Luke Mulhauser who wrote a blog post about the recruitment round. Okay. And... Personally, I would say it's like more accurate to say they're not particularly constrained by finding people who have like a strong resume who seemed quite aligned with their mission, but they are still constrained by someone who can just kind of like hit the ground running as a researcher. And like some evidence for this is that they trialed 12 people, I think for like three to six months, but of those, they only hired five and they're like a multi-billion dollar foundation. So they clearly have the funds to hire more people if they found people above the bar. So but, they might have hired many more of those 12 if they'd felt like they could hit, really hit the ground running. Yeah, there, there's an issue of um, it being taking a lot of resources to train someone. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know their reasons, but I mean, it seems like they could have easily hired like an extra one person if they'd found someone who they thought would be like, wouldn't require lots of training or would be like unusually good at the role. Yeah, so I guess in that quote, it seems like they're saying that, in fact, talent is not the problem. They say, like, well, impressive resumes and people who are really aligned. So it must be something else. And if we think it's not funding, then it's probably these particular skills or maybe just the ability to, like, start right away. Yeah, a couple of different things which might be the thing. One is management capacity. One is training capacity. One is ability to filter through all these people and find out the ones who would be really, really exceptional. 
And then another is just like, you know, there's a big difference between being like pretty good and really, really good. So the way I would characterize it is they're not very constrained by kind of people with strong resumes who seem like pretty aligned, but they are still very constrained by people who can hit the ground running immediately or unusually effective compared to existing staff members. And yeah, maybe some of those other bottlenecks as well, like, like management capacity. Okay, I'll try to stop using the term talent constraint. So now with that clarification out of the way. Yeah, maybe, I don't know if it's worth doing one other clarification, which is like many people read this and were like, oh, so staff at OpenFill are now replaceable. And we'll get on to replaceability later. But I think that's like, we can't conclude that from the evidence because to know that we'd need to know, well, lots of things. But one would be just like, how big were the differences between the people they did hire? Like of the five people they did hire, how productive they are compared to the sixth person they could have hired but didn't. Maybe there could still be a big difference between those. Like just because there was lots of applicants doesn't really tell us. And yeah, and Rob Wiblin has this blog post that we can link to about how even if loads of people apply to a role, you can actually still have really big differences between the top couple of applicants. Yeah. I mean, actually, if anything, the fact that only five of the 12 were offered the role seems to suggest that they did think there were relatively big differences, assuming that they had the funding to hire more. Um, Yes. Okay, so you've given us some sort of evidence or like some reasoning to think that, you know, this does not mean that OpenFill does not have skill bottlenecks. So what's the positive case for thinking that many of our of the most pressing problems or the problems that we focus on the most are, in fact, constrained by particular skills? Yeah, so there's a couple of different arguments. And to some degree, the yeah, the situation within each problem is different. But yeah, I'm going to be kind of trying to generally talk about the problems that we highlight most on our key ideas page, where it's reducing existential risks, AI safety, bio-risk, global priorities research, effective altruism movement building, improving institutional decision-making, and to some extent, other long-termist issues, like we have this longer list on the on the page now. So I think one quite general argument that could apply to many people, I call the outside institutions argument. So... This is the idea that if like another person comes along who's really motivated to work on these issues and has like a really effectiveness focused mindset, but we don't have any funding, that person can just go and work in government. They could try and work and get a get funding in academia. They could go and work at like another foundation and try to work on relevant issues from that foundation. They could go and work in a nonprofit. And so to some extent, there like are already existing ways that you can get funding to work on these issues at least to some extent. And so this just kind of means like, well, even if we had very little funding was kind of directly aimed at these issues or ineffective altruism, we didn't have much money. But if we had lots of great people, they could all still go and do useful things. And so this is a kind of general reason why getting an extra person is often seems kind of like that leads to more progress than getting an extra like $100,000, which is like, you know, enough to pay for one or two persons salaries. Okay, so sorry, two clarifications on this. It seems like you know, one of the reasons that we prioritize the issues that we do is that they seem neglected, right? So that seems, that puts at least a a bit of a limit on how strong this kind of argument can be, right? Because if it were the case that you could just go into government and work on AI safety in their AI safety division, you know, that would uh, suggest that it was less neglected than it is. And it seems like we tend to pick problems where it's actually kind of hard to to find. Well, so these outside institution ones, these are places where unless you care about the issue, nothing would happen. Mm. Um, So yeah, you can go into academia and do some random research, or you could really try to get, you could to some extent get a grant and like work on something that you think is really important. And so an extra person who really cares about the impact of their research can go and do that stuff already. Okay. 
So maybe it's like harder than it would be if it wasn't a generally neglected issue. Maybe it'll be harder to get funding because people won't be as interested. But it's at least possible to like go into these other places and, in fact, make them into a place where you can work on this kind of issue. Yes. Okay. And then the other clarification or the other question I had was, this is an argument for just thinking that getting people motivated by the the sort of principles or, you know, interested in working on these issues is particularly valuable relative to the amount, you know, the, a salary that you might pay somebody to work on these issues, right? It's not like something that specifically has to do with the particular skill bottlenecks. Well, I think it does mean that just like if you magically could create some extra money or like an extra person who's motivated, then it's better to have the person, which is one way of just seeing what we mean by skill constrained versus money constrained. I see. I guess I was thinking it seems very general. So like that might be like just called labor constrained or something. Yeah. So, yeah. So although I think in general, people should avoid the term talent constraints. Yeah. There is still kind of a sense in which you can talk about it in a very general way sometimes with some of the arguments. But it, it it's still good when you're talking about when you're starting to plan your career to try to make it more specific. Okay. So maybe like some of the arguments are for there being these more general constraints on just like or like it it being high priority to get more people interested in working on these issues. And then some of them might be for more particular skills that we like need people to develop. Yes. Okay, cool. So what's um what's another argument? Yeah, I mean this one's a bit just a bit of an aside, but there's almost a kind of converse argument to the one I just said. Where like, if one way with doing the comparison is like earning to give versus working directly on the issue, with the earning to give strategy, going to earn money, well, there you're just competing with lots of people who aren't altruistically motivated because everyone wants money to some degree. So that's the kind of reason to think that it should be quite hard to have an influence via earning money and then donating it. Whereas that argument doesn't obviously apply to some things you could do with your time where they're only really of interest to people who want to have an impact. And so there, there, should, there should be much less competition to get those roles. And so maybe a really like paradigmatic role would be some like boring government bureaucrat job that like no one really wants. There's not much status in it. There's not much money in it. But it seems like government bureaucrats do often oversee these really big budgets and have quite a big influence. Okay. How is that the converse to the other thing? So I guess the, I was thinking like, well, if you're really motivated, you can go and get funding from somewhere else easily. Whereas if you instead try to earn to give, then it's like not easy because you're competing with everyone. So it just, I don't know if it's exactly the converse, but okay. <laughs> it seems like a kind of, there's some kind of spectrum of things there okay. which fit together somehow. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So that's, again, another argument that, you know, maybe doing good in general is sort of like generally talent or labor skill constrained. Are there particular arguments that say like these top problems that we're working on in particular at this mm. moment in history are especially talent or labor skilled constrained? Yes. <laughs> Sorry. So I think, of, yeah, I think a big one there is what I call the overhang argument. So this is kind of the idea that in fact, altruism for a while is like a small number of people interested in working on these issues or kind of taking a broadly effect altruist approach. And then basically at some point, I guess I forget, I forget the exact dates, but like around 2016, I suppose, maybe a bit earlier, open philanthropy really started granting to these areas in a big way. And so it was like, the amount of money being given each year suddenly started to rise a lot. And suddenly there was like billions of dollars that was kind of interested in these approaches, but the number of people didn't like immediately grow tenfold as well. So there seemed to then, this kind of created this situation where there was a mismatch between the two. And that kind of really alludes to the com what, what we were just saying right at the start with AI technical safety research and how 
if you suddenly get way more of one resource rather than another, it can create a bottleneck for that the other resource for a while. And okay. this 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 comes this is because there's complementarities between different resources. Okay, so this is like maybe a particular time, or at least in 2016, or you know, whenever exactly this happened, there was this big overhang. Do you think that overhang is reduced at all with time? Yeah, it's it's actually it's a pretty difficult question. So you, you have to you'd have to try to estimate like how much money available to the community and kind of money generally pursuing effect archer style things is growing compared to how much the number of people interested in doing it is growing. And we don't have great data on either of those. My guess is the number of people is growing at something like 30% a year. So that's people who are like, people who will identify as effective altruists or members of the effective altruism community? Yeah, the the thing we have the best data for is just people who say they're really keen on effective altruism and willing to switch their careers in a kind of broadly effective altruist way. Okay. Which unfortunately is not, there's many other people who are interested in working on the issues that we highlight besides people interested in effective altruism. Well, that sounds fortunate to me. (laughs) Yes, but it means that we don't have data on those ones. So it makes it a bit harder to tell. So maybe over 30%. I mean, hopefully, like, you know, when we talk about these issues, people who don't want to wear the label of being part of the effective altruism community might still be interested or motivated to, to start working on these problems. So, Well, yeah. And in fact, there just are lots of people like that. But yeah, I'm just, so 30%. If we say it's now been like four years, that is threefold growth in four years. And so, yeah, I, I think the amount of money available has grown some, but because there's now billions of dollars, potentially you'd have to find like extra billionaires to really grow it substantially or really get like a lot of people. And so I guess I think... Who are earning to give. Yeah. So, I mean, so yeah, getting 10,000 people to take the Give and can pledge something like that. But that hasn't happened. So I, I think probably the number of skilled people has caught up some with the money. So the in, the overhang is less than it used to be. But do you think there is still some overhang? There still seems to be some overhang in the sense that Open Philanthropy and maybe some other donors would be willing to give a lot more if they could find exciting opportunities. Yeah, there, there, there's lots of like smaller opportunities that are cool and they kind of wish they could give to, but they don't have time to assess them all. But if someone could really come along and was like, okay, I've got an amazing plan to spend $100 million, or let's call it $10 million, they, they would probably seriously consider that. And so in that sense, there's still this big overhang because we could be spending much more than we are. But though, yeah, you can kind of see that someone able to actually do that would have to have the skills needed to be like an entrepreneur who could run a big organization and do something that all the funders think is effective, which is quite a high, high bar. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned they maybe don't have time to assess all of these opportunities. And, you know, I mean, we're talking about OpenPhil here, but it seems like there are other grant makers in the community. And it seems like this is this like sort of funny combo of like, well, it is a shortage of, you know, talent, labor, skill to be able to have people assessing these opportunities. But the effect is that it makes money flow less freely. So it's kind of interesting. It sort of like mimics yes. uh, a like shortage of funds, but it's really a shortage of skill well, or labor. Yeah, a, a certain type of skill. I mean, in, so one way of seeing it is because in the overhang argument, the fundamental thing driving it is complementarities between uh, money and various types of labor. The, as the overhang gets bigger, the types of labor that become the most valuable are the types of labor that are the most complementary with funding. So for instance, someone who's able to be a grant maker that become that skill set becomes really valuable the more money there is around 
someone who's able to be an entrepreneur and really kind of deploy a lot of resources or a manager becomes more valuable. To some extent, research talent becomes more useful because researchers, like their discoveries are applied over a larger amount of resources. Wait, so why does a manager become more valuable? That feels unintuitive to me. Well, yeah, I'm not, I'm not totally sure, but the idea is something like if you really want to like scale up quickly and suddenly like hire loads of people, then in practice, you won't be able to do it because you won't have enough managers. Like you've got the funding, but you can't turn that funding magically into people doing the right thing. You need someone to hire them, train them, manage them. Okay, that makes sense. You also said this thing about, you know, it's quite a high bar to be able to impress all of these fund managers or grant makers. And that also seems interesting because you could think that a natural response to the overhang would be to lower the bar for funding projects. Does it seem like that's happened? And if not, why not? I think it has happened a bit in that it seems easier to raise a bunch of money for an effective altruism style thing than before 2015. Another thing is like salaries have been raised a bit, which I think is also a sensible response because if you're saying, well, we've got loads of money and no one to do anything, a pretty natural thing is to pay people more. I think people often think raising salaries will help more than it does, but it does help a bit. And so... And that's because what we were talking about earlier, you can't just get people who have the skills that you need to suddenly appear by offering a high salary. Yeah, I mean, I think there's actually a couple couple of other factors. One is that like people, yeah, people are motivated by many different things, only one of which is money. And so you can increase salaries a lot, but only get like somewhat better people, not hugely better people. And in particular, the people who care most about doing good tend to like care the least about money. It's not like a perfect match, but there seems to be some relationship there. So it kind of helps even less than you might first hope compared to if we were if we were in like a much more money driven domain, like in finance, you'd expect that more money will mean more people like pretty directly because that's kind of why people are doing it. But it's like not really the case within research or social impact nonprofits or things like that. Another effect is because of culture, you can't hire a new person and then pay them like three times more than all your existing stuff because that people will feel like that's unfair. So actually, if you want to raise salaries, you tend to have to raise salaries across all of your staff. And so that actually means the marginal cost of hiring those higher salary people is way more than their salary. It's like their salary plus the increase across everyone else. Yeah, interesting. Also, in some areas, you can't raise salaries like academic institutes, so typically on a fixed university salary scale. Right. It's not like an effective altruism nonprofit is in charge of the Oxford salaries for the various people you know, doing global priorities research. Yeah, lots of stuff happens in organizations that can't. I mean, there's, there's, there's other things as well, like PR issues where if you're paying loads in a nonprofit, even there, it will be seen badly. Yeah. Okay, so are there any other arguments for thinking that, you know, the problems we prioritize most highly are constrained in this way? Mm. Yeah, so I think there's a couple more. And like I should say, none of these are kind of decisive by themselves, but they kind of add up. So this one seems less clear to me, but it seems like often the most skilled people in a career path or in an area have a lot more impact than the median. Let's just like take that as a given. Obviously, that's a big topic about how much people do actually differ in their productivity or or output or impact in different fields. But let's just assume there are large differences. That can create talent constraints if there's some constraints on salaries, which I just kind of said, there are a bunch of constraints on salaries, like around culture and university, you know, people being on fixed scales. And so when you do have some constraints like that, it kind of means that the most productive people get paid much less than they're actually producing. And so then 
anyone extra like that is super valuable to you because they have this kind of like big extra impact that you're not paying for. And that that kind of thing seems to create these big differences. Because the incentives aren't quite lining up. Like you're not really able to reward the thing that is in fact the most valuable to you. Yes. And it's like most obvious in something like academic research where often many researchers will be paid like the exact same amount. But it still seems like even those those who are paid the same one might be producing like several times more papers than another. That's what book sales are for. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, and we we interviewed a bunch of biomedical researchers about how much they felt talent versus funding constrained. And lots of them said, yeah, well, I think like the best researchers often produce way more. And they didn't say this, but effectively they have to pay them the same. So an extra person like that really like contributes a lot more to their lab. So this is like an argument why anyone who's kind of unusually good at an area, we're constrained by more people like that. Yeah. So I guess this is in some sense, another argument that shows that money can't quite be turned into this kind of specialist labor as easily as, you know, a first year economics class might make you think or something. Yeah. The the kind of other general type of argument is just simply what people in these different issues think. And so we've tried to do these surveys of people who work in these different problems that we work on. And sometimes we just ask them, do you feel more talent constrained than funding constrained? And typically people say they feel more talent constrained. Yeah. And another question we asked was like, we tried to get different organizations to estimate the value of retaining their most recent hire in dollars. And then typically people gave like very large figures for those hundreds of thousands of dollars per year, which is like much more than most of those people could have donated if they'd earned to give instead, which is suggestive of there being talent constraints. Though, again, you have to be very clear about what that data actually shows. It shows that the people who were able to get jobs in those areas were worth a lot in terms of money. But that might be a very unusual type of person. Also, it's only at saying that existing employees are very valuable, but they've already been through the hiring and training process. So, well, we did ask about their most recent hires. So it's like not quite, it's not that they've been trained for years and years, but the organization's already paid a lot of costs to get them to that point. And I so, so those will probably be worked in. Or like, it's like a lot of work to hire. So they would not want to lose this person and have to replace them. Even yeah, independent exactly. of everything about whether it's... So they should say that those people are like more valuable to the organization than a random new person who they haven't assessed and trained yet. But it seemed like the figures that people gave were even higher than you would expect even working that stuff in. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's hard to know... Hiring and training people does cost a lot of senior management time. So that could also, that's effectively very expensive as well. So it could have a significant effect on. Yeah. Although, I mean, if that's what's driving it, then in some sense, that's another form of this sort of talent or labor constraint, right? It's like, we don't have enough senior management time in order to like make this happen. If only we had some more people at that level, then maybe it'd be easier for us to do this hiring. Yes. But then, yeah, that's like a very particular type of person, someone able to be a manager in one of the important nonprofits in one of these areas. Yeah. And I mean, actually, maybe able to is a little misleading because in this particular case, it's like, not only are they able to, they like have the experience. They actually <laughs> yeah. they actually are managers. <laughs> so some of this just maybe, maybe will take time. Yes. Yeah. Maybe this is now a good point to kind of step back a bit. And I think it's quite useful to think about how the situation's evolved over time as another way of seeing the situation. So you can kind of think really early in effective altruism, say like in 2012, there was a bunch of interested people, but none of us really had much money. So it really did seem like 
you know, an extra $100,000 would have, I mean, when we first started working at 80,000 hours, our salary was like 15,000 pounds a year. So an extra 100,000 pounds could have like paid like four of our salaries. So that really seemed like, wow, we're like very funding constrained. And in Um, particular, you might have hired an extra four people if you'd had that extra 100,000. Yeah, it's hard to know in like our particular case exactly what happened. But yeah, something along those lines. Yeah, it seemed like money was like much harder to come by. And so so therefore much more useful. But then, yeah, as I was as I was saying, we kind of went into the second stage where then there was like open philanthropy and there's other billionaires who are somewhat interested. And so like Reed Hoffman's donated to Global Priorities Institute. And yeah, like other kind of a bunch of like wealthy people got interested in effect altruism. Some people went to earn to give and they like did well. And then they started funding organizations working on these problems. And so then, although money is still a bottleneck and is like always useful it became like a bit less so. And then instead, there was this kind of phase when, yeah, there was like lots of money and like not as many people around to do things. And so then there was a kind of sense in which, yeah, we were pretty constrained by maybe just like this kind of general junior talented people stage. But then it seems like in the last couple of years, there has been a shift where if you're just like fresh out of university and you don't have any particular skills or training in these areas, it's maybe even like a little bit harder to get a job than it would have been, say, in 2016. And so now in this third stage, we're a bit less constrained by kind of generally interested, talented people and a bit more constrained by either people who have very particular skills that are needed, such as like we use the AI technical safety example earlier or like grant maker skill sets, the kinds of things we list in our priority problems. Or maybe we're more constrained now by what you might want to call like an organizational bottleneck, which is kind of ability to figure out who's interested. So there's a kind of like searching, like vetting bottleneck and like figure out who would be able to contribute and then train them, manage them, and even just like have things that lots of people could do. An example that sometimes get gets brought up is Teach for America. <laughs> so Teach for America, I don't know how many thousands of people do it every year, but it's like some significant fraction of talented college grads. The, the equivalent in the UK, I think, is the big, it's called Teach First, is the biggest graduate employer in the UK. Wow. And I think it's, you know, something like 5% of graduates do it. Or at least, I don't know, at Oxford, it was something like 5%. So they're Um, very good at putting people to work. Yeah, but there's like, there's no kind of effective altruism equivalent of Teach for America, something that can just absorb a thousand people and train them and get them doing things that seem really useful for the top problems. So it sounds like almost like this is a kind of movement building, but I guess oftentimes... Movement building involves just like introducing people to the ideas and things like that. But maybe this is something more particular, like taking people from, you know, interested in the ideas to really being able to contribute. And maybe that involves actually having a bunch of roles available for people. But maybe it also involves like helping give people a bunch of skills. Yeah, there's almost another type of overhang as well, which is just like number of people who've generally heard of effective altruism and are generally interested in these issues is much larger than in the past. Whereas in the past, just kind of having heard of effective altruism already made you like this unusual person. Now it seems like the bottleneck is more like going from people who are generally interested into like trained and actually in a really effective role. And it's like that later stage that seems like it's been the bottleneck in the last couple of years. Yeah, interesting. So, so it's like, okay, there's like funding available and there's people available, but somehow we in the effective altruism community and in in particular in these professional organizations, you know, we haven't yet figured out how to like get those things to work together to actually like get progress made or at least in, you know, on a large scale. 
yeah, within, I guess, within the kind of main organizations. And, and I wouldn't want to overstate it because in some ways things have got better. There are things around these, like even the fact that Open Plan 3 did this hiring round and hired like junior people they were going to train up. They weren't doing that a few years ago. Or there's things like the Research Scholars Program, which is aiming to do this. This is at FHI and it takes people who are prospective graduate students and helps them figure out what they want to do. Um, yeah, in particular, like to do with research in in these these problem areas. So yeah, I guess like maybe one complication here is that it seems like it feels sort of most easy to imagine this organizational capacity bottleneck or something in the case of like, well, organizations that have the effective altruism label aren't big enough and don't have enough managers to like basically be able to hire these people. But then I guess since we think so many people can make such a big positive difference working in areas besides effective altruism organizations, you know, in government, in research, what is the, you know, what's the equivalent of this capacity bottleneck for those cases? Well, I was almost wondering if I should emphasize now that what I've been talking about is just, it's always just a matter of degree about which bottleneck seems like the very most pressing right now, but always like, additional organizational capacity, talented people, funding, they're always useful. And there's always like good things to do with those things. So I'm not saying that all those other things are just not useful at all. And you're giving some really good examples of, well, if you are just a generally talented person, maybe it's like a bit harder to get some of these jobs, particularly at the nonprofits that are most central to the community right now than it was, say, in 2015. But that doesn't mean there's nothing useful to do. You can go and train up in academia or start focusing on some kind of research there. You, there's like many, many hundreds or even thousands of people could go and work in government and policy positions. Yeah, you could go and work at some other nonprofits that are like relevant to these issues, but not, aren't like labeled as effective altruist organizations. And so, yeah, having extra talented people is still really useful. It's just like exactly what you might focus on would be a bit different. Yeah, I guess like... I was thinking maybe one answer to the question of like, you know, what's the analog of organizational capacity for those other areas? It might be like guidance or something. So like, you know, of course, this is something that 80,000 hours is trying to provide, but figuring out, you know, what are the best roles in those other institutions and maybe providing people, you know, people having support or community when they're in those other institutions so that they feel good about it and feel, you know, motivated for the long haul. Those could be like sort of the equivalent. And if we got those, then it'd be easier for people to put their skills to work. Yes. And I think one thing that does make it hard to go and do those other things is it often requires more independence because you might be kind of like going out alone or it might, it might feel like that. And so... Yeah, in a sense, that's like another type of organizational bottleneck is like, you know, could someone form a really good community of people who are all trying to work in a certain area of policy together? And that would like help them all do that more easily. Yeah. I mean, I think working at an effective altruist organization, you and I are super lucky because we get to talk to people about the things that we care about all day and talk to people who share our values and you know, I think it's really hard for people who are like, I really care about these things, but I'm going to like go out into the wild and like work in a, you know, department of a government where nobody else will care about the same things I care about. But I guess if there was some way to make that less true and make those communities more supportive, then that would make it a bit more attractive and easier for people. Yes. And I mean, this is, this is starting to change a bit. There are, there are lots of other people interested in these ideas doing those things who, who will be up for chatting to you. <laughs> cool. Um, okay, so I guess this is the third, you said, you know, you Maybe felt like there now these... we're in the third wave of, the third stage of effect altruism. Yeah, there's yeah. this, yeah. So first it was like no no money, then it was like, 
no, you know, like generally junior people. People that yeah. do stuff in general. Now it's this more organizational constraints or people with specific skills. Yeah. Is it, you know, what, what's coming next, do you think? So I, I'm not sure. So one, one option could be that we just go back to one of the earlier stages. So you could imagine if like the number of people keeps growing, but the number of the amount of funding doesn't grow as fast, then eventually we could go back towards being funding constrained or the other, the other thing could happen. Like if we manage to scale up these areas a lot so that it's easier to absorb lots of people who aren't already, don't already have those specific skills, then it could go back to being constrained by like generally talented people. I guess that would be kind of a good thing. Like I could imagine sort of this cycle, but of course, like remembering, like you said, that this is always just what's the most valuable thing on the margin. It could be like, you know, this going through the cycle, but like getting bigger and bigger and bigger until it's like, well, we're funding constrained because we don't have an absolute ton of money to, <laughs> to like pay all of the people that are so talented and have the skills and that we have the capacity to employ. And that yes. would be good. Yeah. No, and we should talk later in the episode about how to kind of respond to this as an individual. Mm. Another thing that could become the bottleneck is as like more and more people get interested in taking these kinds of approaches, it becomes harder and harder to coordinate them. And so maybe you will end up thinking coordination is the main bottleneck. And so like one example of that is as more and more people are involved, it becomes harder to share information between them. And so maybe having a really good infrastructure to share information becomes the key bottleneck. And I mean, to some extent, this has already happened, which is why one reason why we wanted to set up the job board, or that's almost actually more the organizational bottlenecks thing because like when there's only like 10 jobs you don't need a job board but now there's like hundreds of jobs and it becomes really valuable for someone to like save everyone else time by collating them all into to be clear i think many of these jobs would have existed before we just like didn't know that they would be like good things for people to do because a lot of things on the job board are not at effective altruist organizations they're like in government that yeah that that's true though there are also just like way more jobs in general yeah but yeah, I guess the coordination thing sort of shades into the the organizational capacity thing because it's like, well, because we don't have this way of coordinating people or something like that. Yeah, but there could be other types of examples like different groups starting to like compete over the same resources or like one group doing a thing that they think is really good, but someone else thinks is a disaster. And they they could have in theory compromised and done something that both of them think is good, but like they're not able to do that because we don't have the infrastructure. So you've given some arguments that seem relatively convincing for why, you know, the particular issues that we focus on right now at 80,000 hours, so existential risks from artificial intelligence, bio risks, extreme climate change, institutional decision making, building effective altruism. Am I forgetting any? Global priorities research. Global priorities research, yes. And uh, nuclear security. Yeah, and Um, and a bunch of the other, what we call like other promising problems. Yes, although I feel like we're less sure that those are in particular, constrained in, by the same resources, right? Because we just like haven't um, looked into them very much. Yeah, I mean, I feel like they're mostly constrained by someone who's able to either research or pioneer the area. And someone like that who comes along would get funding, but there's like not many people able to do that. Okay. Yeah, or, or they could go and get a job in academia researching the topic or something like that. So even if those all those issues are constrained in the way that you say, it seems like one could argue that actually, you know, the ways of doing the most good are still funding constrained because maybe they think that, you know, in fact, the thing that does the most good is just saving resources for later. And we can save money maybe more easily. I don't know. I mean, you could argue with this. You can invest money more easily, perhaps, than investing in movement building. Maybe it's more efficient. In fact, we could really put all of those funds to amazing use right now if we just invested them. What do you think about that? 
So if we put a lot of weight on patient long-termism... Which we which... talked about in a previous uh, <laughs> episode of this, well, this little series. That we're not supposed to refer back. Well, like, well, we have a blog post about it explaining it recently. It's um, basically the idea that the best opportunities for doing good might be far in the future. Yes, good definition. So if we put a lot of weight on that, well, then I think the most pressing priorities are, again, movement building or global priorities research, which I think are both more constrained by various skill bottlenecks than funding. Really? So, so you think they'd be better to spend funds on global priorities research than on just investing them to grow for the next, you know, 300 years or so? Well, so, yeah, the reason why we're doing the movement building at all is because we think it, like, compounds, with like, it's higher returns than just investing in the stock market money. Okay, um, that's helpful. But, yeah, and so once those opportunities are used up, then it may well be then the best thing on the margin is to save money. And then it would come down to, and I, well, an additional person can earn a bunch of money and save it. So yeah, I guess I'm not sure exactly whether you'd say that was like, I guess it would just be a question of like whether having more people or leads to more money than having like more money. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, I mean, maybe the reason it gets confusing in this case is that if the best opportunities for impact are really far in the future, then resources are more fungible, right? Because you can, like, you know, we were talking at the beginning, it takes time to, to train people up. But if you have that time, then you can really turn money into talent or, or skills. Yes, I think that's true. And I think also just the option of saving does complicate some of the arguments that I just mentioned. So the funding overhang arguments, well, you could instead just save the money and wait for the bottleneck to go away. And yeah, you wouldn't, you don't want to do that if you're a more urgent long-termist because that waiting that delay has a big negative but if you're if you're quite on the patient end of things and you're like happy to wait so um, or of course if you aren't a long-termist at all it seems like if you're not a long-termist then probably you're going to be less inclined to put that money away well yeah then you just get into the kind of what we call the now versus later trade-off in whatever that other problem is that you're focused on and then you have to figure it out there and yeah, it's not obvious to me that, say, people really focused on global poverty wouldn't be better served by investing the money and donating it in a couple of decades than giving it now. Okay, yeah. So I guess that just depends on, like, specifics of, like, how quickly are people getting better off? You know, what's the rate of return on investment? And maybe we don't want to get into that here. But you're pointing yeah, out and lots it's of an other... option. It might be the right thing to do, even if that's your focus. Yeah, but I think it is true that like the overhang argument seems much less pressing if you're happy to wait. Another argument for thinking that like the project of doing as much good as you can is still funding constrained is if you thought that, you know, we were wrong about what the most pressing problems were. And in fact, that we like don't know what the most pressing problem is. So maybe then you would think, well, even though you can't turn money into, you know, labor or like skilled labor, like super quickly, it's still easier to like, try to pay some new person to come in with a brand new skill set to work on some new problem that you only heard of last year than it is to like convert somebody who's an expert in problem A into an expert in problem B. I mean, I don't know if that's right, Mm. but it seems like something somebody could think. Well, I mean, I think if we don't know what the most pressing problem is, then again, we should focus on global priorities research, which takes us back to that. Okay. Or we should invest in broad interventions. So like, things that make society generally better at tackling whatever global challenges turn out to be the most pressing ones. So maybe reducing great power conflict is an example of something like that. Or I mean, even just, yeah, or improving institutional decision-making is another one we talk about. 
Um, yeah. And then, then it comes down to like whether which ones those are most constrained by. Okay. But I mean, I, I thought you were just going to make the general point that the degree of funding versus skill constraints in different problems is different. And so if you think if you think global health is the most pressing issue, I think there's a much stronger case for it being funding constrained than the ones we talk about the most, which is basically that if you look at GiveWell's top charities, I haven't checked the figures recently, but they're like, I think last giving season, it seemed like there was on track to be about a hundred million dollar funding gap, like, which they didn't expect was going to be filled by even open philanthropy or their donors. And so having an extra hundred million dollars actually per year would be super useful to just fill that gap. So that's that means that these organizations that GiveWell is recommending, they do, in fact, have the organizational capacity and the people to use these funds. Yes. Unlike, uh, unlike we were talking about is maybe the case in the effective altruism community that's focused on these long-termist issues. Yeah, or just the issues that we most focus on. And yeah, what's kind of going on there is that it turns out there's these really scalable global health interventions like giving out insecticide-treated malaria bed nets, where to some degree you can just turn like $5 into a bed net and you could just do more and more of that. At least to a certain um, point. I mean, presumably they would run out of infrastructure eventually if we just dumped yeah, money yeah. on them. But there's roughly the top charities have this $100 million gap. So we're okay. a long way from that. And then after that, you could still do give directly and that could potentially absorb much more money again. I mean, I should say, I think like, an extra talented person could go and work on something even better than like earning to give to those charities. They could go and try and work in an international aid department in government, or they could go and work at a big foundation that focuses on these issues. They could go and work in like a think tank that's working on development policy. And I think many of these could potentially be much higher leverage than like earning to give and spending it on malaria nets. But it does at least show that there is this big use of money that seems like at least very good on the scale of things, even if it's maybe not the like very best thing we could do about global development. So I guess like some people might think that the best thing that we can do for the long-term future is just to like broadly improve positive values through certain kinds of advocacy. And that seems like maybe a case in which it might be funding constrained. It seems like... Uh, I don't think so. Really? Okay, yeah. Social advocacy is like one of the hardest things to just like pay for and get. I thought it might be because it's like a numbers game or something. Like it's all about just like getting enough people to be talking about this. And so that feels more like you can pay for it than a research breakthrough or something. No, I mean, I think, you know, if we if we think about big social shifts in the past, like civil rights or gay marriage, although like the advocates doing that do need some funding, in practice, they didn't have that much funding. And it's much more a case of someone being super inspiring and like figuring out a great message and then kind of gradually spreading it across society. So I I would say that that's very constrained by kind of people who are really good at advocacy. Yeah. Um, Okay. I mean, maybe you could imagine like, could we design like a Facebook ad that could just like (laughs) get people to become altruistic and put like hundreds of millions of dollars into it. But I think kind of basically no. Or like maybe it would be more constrained by like a brilliant creative mind to create such a Well, yeah, coming up with something like that would be Um, a very big achievement. Yeah, interesting. Okay, cool. All right, is there anything else we want to say on the sort of issue of... Well, you did just give me one idea where... Sure. I mean, the kind of thing that might be like a long-termist thing that's closest to buying lots of malaria bed nets could just be buying loads of carbon permits Mm. and hopefully something a bit more leveraged than that, but just... There, there, there are various climate change things we can do that could absorb billions of dollars and that reduces climate tail risks and 
and climate change is probably a risk factor. Yeah, that's really interesting because climate change is one of the better funded areas that we are interested in. And so it's interesting that you feel like that's one place where like more money could do a lot more good. Well, I'm not saying that money would do more good there. I actually think money does more good in the other (laughs) things. I'm just saying that like it could absorb a bunch of money and it would do some somewhat useful thing, though not like the most useful thing. Yeah, sorry. I was trying (laughs) to say like it seems more funding constrained than some of the other areas which is not the same thing as saying that money could do more good there. Well, yeah, it's yeah, it's more funding relative to talent skill constraint. I mean, I mean, I'm not even sure I would stand behind that, okay. but, but I'm but just like saying it, it could absorb lots of funding and it would help. Cool. Okay, so yeah, hopefully this hasn't been too confusing. I feel like it got <laughs> a little bit messy um, when the entire point was to clarify things. But is there any way we can sort of sum up the you know main things that you've learned thinking about this? Well, yeah, some of the things we've covered in the conversation. Well, one thing would just be, as as you can see, it's fairly complicated and sometimes confusing. But yeah, just like as a quick summary, well, we talked about how each global problem, it's like can be constrained by different resources. And so like as people who want to do good, we want to figure out for the ones we're focused on, like which things would be the most helpful. And we gave a bunch of arguments for why the ones that we're focused on seem to be right now, we kind of call it the third stage effect altruism, where they're more constrained by certain skill sets and organizational constraints than in the past. Though, as I've said, all of these resources can be used to have more impact. Even within our niche long-termist problems, additional funding, you could give it to the EA, one of the EA funds, the EA long-term fund, or the EA community fund. And they seem to like often fund good stuff, including us. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully good. Um, So... Yeah, we're just talking about like what things have been most pressing at different stages. Okay, so I'm wondering how this is related to the concept of replaceability. So, you know, actually replaceability was one of the first one of the first concepts that I associated with effective altruism. Uh, you know, I heard people talking about, well, you know, if you go work for a nonprofit, Versus like taking a, some high paying job and earn it and donating your salary in the case where you're working for the nonprofit, if you didn't work for them, you know, somebody else would do similar work. Whereas in the case of earning to give in a high paying role, the next person who would have done that work would have just kept the money and not given it away. So you were a lot less replaceable in the earning to give role. So that was one point in its favor. And I remember being like, wow, that's interesting. So How's your thinking on that analysis evolved over time? And how is it related to this concept of funding versus, you know, different kinds of constraints? Yes. So I still think all else equal, that argument you made is an additional reason in favor of earning to give compared to compared to another nonprofit, a nonprofit job. But a kind of extreme version of the argument where it's like, well, you wouldn't really have any impact working in the nonprofit because someone would do it otherwise isn't true. And that can often mean that it's higher impact to work at a nonprofit rather than to earn to give. And one way to see that is the whole discussion we've just had about funding versus skill constraints. Those arguments that I was making all have taken account of replaceability already, or at least that's the hope. So I've basically been trying to show that like often you can do more by working directly on one of these issues than earning to give or like a similar amount of money would do. And um, yeah, if those arguments are correct, then that's kind of showing that in this case, that that argument that you made doesn't isn't holding, at least for people who are able to take these jobs. 
Okay, so walk us through this a little bit more. Why wouldn't somebody just be replaceable in, you know, this extreme sense by in a in a job like working at a nonprofit? So yeah, we should maybe later we should kind of outline just how maybe we might analyze replaceability in general. But just to that specific point, one thing that can happen is just like you might just be better at the job than the person who would have done it otherwise. And it just seems like empirically the case to me that often in hiring rounds, like for organizations in these areas, even among the top couple of candidates, there do seem to sometimes be quite large differences in how much impact they would be expected to have at the organization. And so like, you know, if we, if we think the top candidate might have like, it wouldn't be crazy that they would have twice as much impact as the marginal candidate, in which case, at worst case, replaceability would only reduce your impact by 50%. So this is like, um, if you get the job, that shows maybe or like that suggests that in fact you would be better at it than the next candidate because you know the people in the organization have you know weighed up the evidence and decided you seem like the best person for it in yes. which case your you know your impact is everything on top of what the what the next person would have done which could be substantial yeah the, i think the the bigger point is like it seems like there are often pretty big differences even when there's been like lots of applicants this is actually exactly what we expect if we think people's skills is again like this heavy tailed or log normal distribution you'd expect like the differences among the very top people are actually larger than the differences among the median people. And so a job application around can be really competitive in the sense that like hundreds of people applied, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the top two candidates were the same. Yeah. So I think, you know, we mentioned Rob's post earlier, he goes into the math for why, in fact, actually, if there's more applicants, that could mean you're less replaceable, which is sort of maybe a bit counterintuitive. Listeners can check that out. We'll link to it. Okay. And then the second point Uh is that suppose you get the job and someone else would have taken it otherwise. Well, if that person is also concerned to work on these issues, they're going to go and do some other thing that helps. So you've actually freed up that person to go and do something else. And so that that impact should also be accounted for. So by taking the job, I make it so that, you know, they don't have to do the work and they can do something else that's useful. Yes. So that doesn't apply if you're taking a job that like someone who doesn't care about impact could have done otherwise. But it does count if you are like, considering working in a job that lots of altruistic and kind of people who care about these issues do work on. Yeah. So I wonder if it's like, you know, if you're thinking about replaceability, maybe the main thing to avoid is doing a job that somebody who doesn't care at all about impact could do just as well as you in terms of having a positive impact with their work. Yes. I think that is one other kind of implication, probably. Just also one other interesting point is the, the two things I just said, actually, they like balance each other out. So if I am like definitely replaceable and someone would have definitely done the job otherwise, then now there's kind of 100% of an extra person doing something else that's good. Other cases, I'm not replaceable and no one would have taken the job otherwise, in which case I do 100% of the impact. And so like in either case, I'm still doing some good. Interesting. Because it's like depending on, so if there are other people around that are just as skilled as you are in the same way, then like on the one hand, (laughs) <laughs> so if there are those other people around, then it's better to free them up. And if yes. there aren't those other, pe- those other people around, then it's and like... you're not replaceable. You're not replaceable at all. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Okay, so I was going to like... And yet that's like an intuitive idea in a way, because like, all else equal, we should expect that there's like more talented people wanting to work on pressing problems. There's like more is going to get done. <laughs> I mean, that does sound common sense. Yeah, because otherwise just like no one would be able to do anything. Because like, <laughs> there would always, it would always be being replaced, but it's like clearly not how the world works. Progress in the world is sometimes made. Um, yeah. yeah. So 
One way of pushing back on the second point is, you know, if the issue that we were pointing to before, you were pointing to before about organizational capacity is really bad, then it might not be the case that you really are freeing up somebody to go do great work. Like, so imagine there's only a hundred opportunities for doing great work in in the world. This is getting very <laughs> fanciful, fanciful. Yeah, or within our top problems or yeah, or within, within AI yeah. safety or something, yeah. Within, our, within problems we think are the most pressing, then, you know, by taking the job, the other person isn't really freed up. If I'm the hundredth person to take it or to take one of these jobs, then, yeah, they, they can't do anything. And so it seems yes. like maybe the re- replaceability argument is a little bit stronger while we are having this bottleneck around organizational capacity. Yeah. So to some degree, to some extent, you just need to get into the details of the situation. And yeah, I agree there could be a case where the person you free up just can't do something valuable because there aren't any other good roles left. And in which case you would again become a bit more, you'd be more replaceable. Though there is one like lower bound to kind of bear in mind is like someone could always earn to give. And that's actually the, that's a marginal thing that lots of people could do. Where that could mean even taking a, you know, moderately paid job and donating 10%. Yes. Though I suppose if we think it's that, then, I mean, if that thing is much less impactful than like actually getting the job, then it would again make you more replaceable. I guess but, I was yeah. just trying to make the the claim feel more plausible that this is something that like anyone could do because it's not the case that anyone could be like a quantitative trader that makes yeah. uh, a ton of money a year. So. No, so yeah, unfortunately, earning to give just gets associated with like really, really high paying roles. But the way I prefer to think about it is you're earning to give whenever you just earn more than you would have and donate extra because of that. Um, what if you just earn the same amount that you would have, <laughs> but donate more than you would have? I guess I don't quite think of that as earning to give, but okay. it's like still a good thing to do. Okay, <laughs> okay, P- possibly I'm nitpicking. Um, okay, so it seems like the replaceability argument could be a bit stronger, but it's still not going to be that strong, even if we're in this, this well, uh, yeah. world. I mean, I think a, a general message with replaceability is just like, it's really complicated and you have to think about the details of the specific case. You can't just make a general argument like, well, someone else would have done the job otherwise, so therefore you have no impact. And yeah, it could, depending on the details, it could go one way or the other. You could be more or less replaceable. Does it seem like there's a general thing, though, where like it's still the case that earning to give is always going to be the least replaceable until everyone starts donating tons of their, you know, a bunch of their income? Yeah, no, I mean, like I said, right at the start, I do think all else equal, the argument you made right at the start is a reason in favor of earning to give. But yeah, I think another big point I would want to make is I think it's like a relatively small correction because... You know, maybe we're talking about like it reduces your impact by like 50% or something. But we tend to be dealing with like so much bigger uncertainties than 50% that that really just like isn't a big issue. (laughs) Um, We should instead be focusing more on just how like high impact is the organization? How good is your personal fit? Will you get good career capital from it? And you think that all of those are more, I mean, sorry, like I'm just like a little Mm. confused. So you're thinking all of those factors could have a bigger effect on your impact than whether you're sort of 50% replaceable. Yeah, I think either they're bigger or it's more obvious, which like more career capital is better. That's pretty That's pretty obvious. Whereas with the replaceability, it's like really complicated to work out what effect it's having in a particular case. So once you take account of both the uncertainty and the smaller size of the effect, it often just doesn't seem like the most useful thing to be thinking about okay. when choosing a career. Which is why we kind of don't, when we are actually taking people through like how to compare options, we don't really foreground replaceability as a key thing to think about. Though 
the way it gets factored in is we try to recommend things to people do that are more skill constrained than funding constrained. And in a sense, replaceability is being factored into that already through that. And I would also say it's like, it is an extra argument in favor of earning to give. Though, yeah, it could also be an argument in favor of other, there, there are other jobs where you can do a cool thing that just wouldn't be done by like a non-altruistic person. So like an example would be, yeah, well, you could be an academic and you could like focus your research more on high impact things. You could be a journalist and you could write about more high impact things than would have been written about. So like, obviously you won't have perfect control over what you have to write about. You have to do lots of like boring stuff as well, but you still have some flexibility. And uh, yeah, I think there's like lots of roles like that where people who didn't care about impacts wouldn't have done it otherwise. Yeah, okay. So like like earning to give, this is a case where you're converting sort of resources that people would have spent on just other stuff into mm. being spent on these like top problems, like readership of a newspaper, if yes. you're a journalist writing about these problems or something related. Yes. Yeah, cool. That's yeah. interesting. We could go into a little bit more, like if we did want to analyze replaceability for a particular job, how might we do it? And yeah, this is something that I've kind of had all these really rough notes on for like many years, but have never been able to quite get them to the point where they get released. Is this going to be like a don't try this at home, listeners? <laughs> you know, like don't actually do it, but we're going to do it here on the air. Um, <laughs> a little bit. I mean, I think it helps to illustrate how complicated replaceability is, which maybe will discourage people from <laughs> relying on it too heavily Great. as an argument. Okay. Um, so before we start, when, when we say like how replaceable is someone, the way I think about it is you have the kind of impacts that you tangibly seem to do in the role. And then you have like your actual counterfactual impact having taken account of replaceability. And I like to think of it in terms of like the actual impact divided by the tangible impact is you're like how replaceable you are. That's the replaceability factor. Okay. So like yeah. if you're a doctor and you do like a hundred operations and you save a hundred lives, it seems like your tangible impact is well, I saved a hundred lives. But actually once we take into account replaceability, it's going to be less than that. And right. so that's your real counterfactual impact. Suppose that's 10 lives. Then in that case... The kind of replaceability factor is 10%, 10 divided by 100. And so then, yeah, then we can say like, well, yeah, when you're like not replaceable at all, you're having 100% of the impacts that it seems like you have. And when you're, when you're totally replaceable, you're having zero impact. So then replaceability factor is zero. So then the question is like, how do we estimate this? I think factor? the reason that was confusing to me for a second was that you're like, when you're totally replaceable, then the replaceable factor is zero. So yeah. Like the, the more replaceable you are, the lower the replaceability no, yeah. factor so is. So um, that is confusing. But the way it's defined <laughs> like that is because then you can like multiply the replaceability factor by your tangible impact and get your your true impact. Okay. Which is like what we ultimately care about. Okay. All right. So <laughs> remembering that it's a bit backward or it's a bit, yeah, it, it's upside down. Go on. So yeah. So then the question is like, how do we actually estimate this replaceability factor in different cases. And I think there's like four main factors to consider. The first one is diminishing returns. So although, yeah, adding an extra doctor at the margin does less good than the average doctor seems to do. Yeah, like a, a random doctor is kind of doing the average in their work. But by becoming a doctor, what you actually do is enable there to be, I think there's around 100,000 doctors in the UK. So you allow that to be 100,001 doctors supposing you, you fully increase the number by one. So then the question is like, how much does that extra doctor actually achieve? And that's really the counterfactual impact of increasing the number of doctors by one rather than like what you kind of seem to do directly in the job. And that might be less than the average impact. Yeah, I mean, we should expect it to be way, way less, I think. Mm -hmm. 
just because in general, you get diminishing marginal returns. You know, the 100,000 doctors are already treating the most severely in need patients. And so you you treat somebody a bit less severely in need. Yeah. Obviously, that's a, a cartoonish way of putting it, but that's the basic idea. Yeah, though. So, of course, it depends. It depends on the area. So I think medicine is something like, well, we already have loads of doctors. It's a pretty established thing. So we should expect that to be pretty big diminishing returns. It's like a slightly weird time to be making this argument <laughs> about the uh, COVID crisis. But anyway, go on. <laughs> um, yes. So it might be a bit less diminishing at this moment, but yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe that just illustrates the point is like, you have to actually get into the details of the case. Mm. And um, so one, th- one thing we could say is that generally like large established issues, we should expect that to be more diminishing returns. Whereas a really small startup adding an extra person might not even have any diminishing returns. It might even be increasing returns. And that's because extra people enables you to specialize, have economies of scale. And so generally, when you're like adding people to an organization, generally you get like a little bit of increasing returns at the start. And then it starts to, it forms an S curve and then starts to diminish later as you get bigger. And you kind of like fill the whole market opportunity if it's a for-profit company. Okay. So then, yeah, so you have to like consider the particular cases and figure out. And then... Yeah, so that's diminishing returns. And the second thing is supply-demand effects. So kind of Economics 101 would say, well, if we increase the supply of people willing and able to become doctors, then, well, that would slightly drive down the salaries that you need to pay to like get the number of doctors that you want. And then that should mean that all the hospitals hire slightly more doctors than they would have hired, and that enables them to treat more patients than they would have treated. And so that's really hard to work out how big that effect is because we need to know the supply demand elasticity of firstly doctor the doctor labor market but like so if i'm thinking of becoming a doctor does this imply that if i become a doctor there'll actually probably be more than one doctor added to the pool because it's like me plus oh no no okay no okay sorry no so it would be it's probably going to be less than one i see because they're going to spend some of that money on me and not somebody else so it's going to drive down the salaries but yeah, not enough so to make up for that. The kind of naive thought would be like, well, by you becoming a doctor doesn't increase the number at all. Sorry, if you become willing because you're just like taking someone else's job. Right. But then that's not correct because by increasing the supply of doctors, we slightly decrease salaries of doctors. This is at least if like it's a kind of a kind of functioning market equilibrium. Okay. And then that means hospitals hire more and then they like achieve slightly more. But probably in general, it will probably be less than one whole extra doctor's worth. But where where it lies between zero and one just depends on the supply and demand elasticities of the doctor labor market. And then also you need to consider the like health production function because like to generate health, we need both labor, which is doctors and it's also nurses and like other healthcare workers and then, and then also capital to like pay for medical equipment. All of those things can be like substituted a little bit for each other. So like if doctors become cheaper, then like they'll hire a f- like they'll slightly use doctors more and that will enable them to produce more. But how big that effect is depends on like how much is the medical system constrained by doctors compared to capital, compared to nurses. And so that's kind of, that's then like the kind of more like the product market. But yeah, this is maybe- I am starting to become convinced that this is extremely complicated. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm maybe using the medical system is not a good example because that's not a particularly like for-profit style market where these considerations most often obviously apply. But don't we uh, want a nonprofit style? I mean, most of most people who are thinking about replaceability are probably are going to be thinking oftentimes about nonprofit work. Um, yes. I mean, I do think you can make analogs of these things for nonprofits. Often when replaceability is discussed, it's in the case of like 
oh, well, it's fine for me to do like a harmful job in finance because like someone else would have done it otherwise. Mm. And so sometimes it is it is just like regular for-profit jobs that people are discussing. What do you think of that um, argument, by the way? Well, yeah, same thing as it doesn't, just, it doesn't automatically go through for the reasons we kind of said at the start. It's like you might not be perfectly replaceable. So maybe if you were kind of not replaceable at all, maybe you would be causing like 100% of the harm. Now maybe you cause like 50% harm, but like if that harm is big, you still need to not do that. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. At least, so you just have to kind of like empirically estimate how much harm is actually caused by an additional person in this job. You might be better at causing harm than the next <laughs> person. Right. Okay. All right. Sorry. Yes. Go back to the complicated analysis of replaceability. So then, yeah. So there's the supply demand effects. I mean, I think with those, it will generally be a factor between zero and one. So we know you could be anywhere on the spectrum from fully replaceable to not replaceable. Yeah. Basically. Though, if I had to guess, I would guess that like on average, it's like a 0.5 correction. <laughs> but... That sounds suspiciously <laughs> convenient, uh, but go well, on. It's like, yeah. I mean, the, and there do seem to be cases when you might be fully replaceable on these grounds. So an example of that is when there's a quantity restriction on the number of people in that job. So in the UK, the number of barristers, which is like a certain type of lawyer, that's there's a fixed number which is determined by i don't know the barrister guild or <laughs> whoever that is and it seems like because there's this restriction then they have kind of like unusually good salaries and conditions and then that means that lots of people would be willing to do it way more people than there's there's jobs and so then it kind of seems like you become very replaceable in in that that makes sense yeah whereas on the other side so that whole thing was like if the labor market is at equilibrium but if you're in a field that's like growing really fast and it's like not at equilibrium, you might be in a case where you're just trying to hire people as fast as you can and you're kind of limited by your like management time. And there you can end up in a situation where it's threshold hiring. So just anyone who's like above the bar, you hire and you keep doing that until you eventually hit your equilibrium. But your equilibrium point could be like, you know, if you're running a startup that in theory could have a thousand employees, but you only have 50 employees now, it might be like many years before you hit that equilibrium points and you might be quite talent constrained in that time at which time people would be totally unreplaceable because you know they're actually you're actually just adding another person yes or i guess like you're just speeding up your well you're adding an extra person for that until you get to that equilibrium point right so right but that might be like several years which in which case you're not really replaceable in that job for those years which is like normally how long people take jobs for the third one is differences in impacts which aren't captured by salary or by kind of like compensation in the job. So everything I was talking about there was some kind of market forces thing. But earlier in the episode, we were talking about, well, academics, their salary and their other compensation doesn't track that well how much impact they're having. And in, in fact, with doctors as well, their salaries are pretty fixed, it's like especially in the UK, there's like standard consultant salary and a standard GP salary. Whereas it seems like it could be possible that I think there's even some evidence about this. So like some surgeons are just like much better than other surgeons. And so they're basically having this extra impact that's not, they're not being compensated for. And so there's no reason to expect that. Yeah, that basically means if you're one of those, those like extra good surgeons, then. Something like yeah. um, you would expect, you know, based on just the economics of it for people to, for like the next person to have a lower impact, an impact that better matches the salary. Yeah, like if kind of compensation was perfectly tracking impact, then organizations would hire extra people if it let them have extra impact. And so there would be this kind of efficiency there. But in fact, it seems like sometimes people have way more impacts than their compensation suggests, which there's like a kind of additional thing that's not captured by the replaceability analysis I was just saying. 
Okay, so these are all the factors that go into... Well, there's one more. Oh, there's one more, sorry. So then, then there's the spillover effects. So that was also what we were talking about earlier. Like if I take this job and then I free up someone else and they go and do something else that's good, then we also need to take that into account when analyzing it. And that can be applied at many levels. Like that was just at the level of some couple of jobs, but you could also think of it in terms of industries. Like if I become a doctor and then that means that could free someone else up who like would have become a doctor otherwise, but then they go and do something else. And you, you'd want to think about the impact of that as well. And yeah, if you're considering a, an organization or a, an industry that you think is unusually high impact compared to what people would normally do otherwise, then you can kind of ignore this fourth factor. But sometimes there are important spillover effects, such as the example we gave at the start. Yeah. Or like, as long as you think there are other opportunities that are, you know, anywhere in the same ballpark as impactful as the thing that you're doing, then this will be pretty important. Yeah. And, and the, the person who would have taken your place would have, would do those things. Right. <laughs> um, okay. So yeah, those, those are the, yeah, those are the four factors. But for listeners who want to like think about this in their own case, is the advice basically don't worry too much about it? Or is there, is there anything else to say? Well, yeah, I think we've covered many of the main consequences. So like all else equal, it's better to take jobs that altruists would need to take otherwise. In order for you to have the, the spillover. Impact. Yeah. yeah. And then, yeah, in general, I think it's really complicated and you'd need to do careful analysis before concluding anything about replaceability. And instead, I'd encourage people mostly to focus on more robustly important things like personal fit and how high impact the organization is and whether the cause is pressing and things like that. Though, yeah, I should say also, you know, if you do something with really good personal fit, then that is reducing the replaceability because it makes it more likely that you, you're like better than the person who would have taken your place otherwise. So it's kind of already partly captured by personal fit. Yeah. And then the other way it comes into our advice is like in the skill versus funding constraint thing. Because if an area is like unusually skill constrained, then that's essentially a way of saying that people are less replaceable in that area. Yeah. And then we get into some of the arguments that we had earlier. And when we try and get people in these areas to estimate how useful extra people are compared to funding, they, they've tried to take into account replaceability when making those estimates. Okay, cool. So I guess stepping back a little bit from these details, it seems like a lot of the stuff that we've discussed in this conversation has been sort of a mix of talking about the effect of altruism community in particular, and maybe especially people who are focused on our the problems that we think are the most pressing. But then sometimes we've talked about more general things. You know, you're talking about the the market for doctors. Are there any sort of differences between how the kinds of ideas that we've been discussing apply to the effective altruism community versus just everybody who is thinking about doing good versus everybody who's just thinking about their career? I mean, all the general concepts apply whatever issue you want to work on. And so you can still try to think, is it more skill constrained? What are the skills constraints? Is it more funding constrained? How replaceable might I be? But it's just that how the analysis turns out might be different. And we just, we haven't done the analysis on many other problems. Okay, yeah. So maybe it's like individuated by like the problems that you want to work on. And of course, if people are just thinking about their personal success and not thinking about doing good, I guess none of these things apply because you don't care if you're replaceable or not. Yeah, Okay, so that's replaceability. And before we were talking about talent, skill, labor constraints versus funding constraints, but all of this is at a relatively abstract level. So if listeners are looking to try to do as much good as they can with their careers and they're you know thinking about making a career decision, I can imagine some of this being a bit demoralizing. So like 
especially the part about, you know, maybe we're in this place right now where there's these constraints on organizational capacity and it's hard to find things for people to do who aren't don't already have these really valuable skills and you know people who feel like well I'm I don't already have those really valuable skills might feel sort of at a loss what do you have to say to them about you know how they should sort of conduct a job search in light of these dynamics yeah so there's quite a few different things to say here so one one thing is if the key bottlenecks are well we said one is these particular skills that are needed in these problem areas. So given that, one thing you could do is focus on getting those skills, focusing on career capital for a couple of years. And uh, yeah, there have been lots of cases of people who've kind of trained up in something outside one of these issues, then come in with that experience. So that's one thing that maybe like now seems more attractive than it did in the past when just these roles were often filled by really junior people. Another thing to say is that many people are both are overconfident in like the chances of succeeding in different things. And many people are also underconfident. And we often speak to people on advising who are just like, oh, I could never get one of these jobs. Like that just seems so competitive. But then they actually do get the job when they apply and they do really well. And so that's a real shame if you're in that case. So I think kind of like if in doubt, it is better to apply even to these things that you think you might not get. And you can kind of see that there's there's a little bit of an asymmetry where making a bunch of job applications, you know, maybe takes months or, you know, part time over a year. But like, if you get it, it's something you're going to do for several years or maybe even many, many years beyond that. Well, even if you only do it for several years, presumably it sets you up for something else after you do that. Um, yeah, exactly. We talked so, about this a little bit with um, Michelle in the podcast with Michelle. So she talked about underconfidence and mm-hmm. the importance of making lots of job applications. Yeah. And it's not just lots of job applications, but it's also being a little bit ambitious and going like a little bit further than what you might think you'll like definitely get. Though also, you also want to have some backup options as well in case you're one of the overconfident people. <laughs> so like, you're just unlucky. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. So we sometimes hear people going around being like, well, yeah, I'm like, I've, you know, I've applied to these three really competitive things. And if I don't get that, I'm going to do this other thing. And the other thing is like super competitive as well. And it's like, that's not like a solid a solid plan. So having a backup option as well. Yeah. Maybe just another thing to say is like, you know, a typical job application process has like a one to maybe 10% acceptance rate. And so, yeah, just for like normal jobs, you normally, that means you need to apply like 10, you kind of need to p- pursue like 10 to hundred positions in order to have a high chance of getting a job. And if you're the median candidate. Yeah. The, well, the average, I think the, the average, candidate. Uh, average candidate. And so, yeah, even if an area is very like skill constrained, well, maybe now the acceptance rate is 6% rather than 2%. So it's three times higher chance. So it's like, in a sense, very skill constrained, but still, you still need to make many applications before getting a job for sure. And then, yeah, one consequence of this is just like, there's just not enough jobs within like effective altruism branded organizations to kind of give you a guaranteed chance of getting one. In the last effective altruism survey, for the very most engaged people in the community, which is maybe around 1,000, 2,000 people, they, I think it was around 76% said that the thing they wanted to go for was working at an effective altruism nonprofit. But it seems like currently there's not quite enough jobs for everyone to do that. So it might well be great for them to pursue those those positions because they could be really high impact. So I wouldn't necessarily say they're making the wrong call to aim at that thing. But you should also bear in mind that if there's not enough jobs, then some of, some people will need to do something else. So it's important to have a backup plan. And yeah, that that would take us back to the conversation earlier about how there's loads of things people 
could do within policy or academia or other nonprofits. And also there's always learning to give as well. And, you know, although we've been talking a lot about skill constraints, as I also mentioned, additional funding is still useful. So that's still a solid option. Yeah. Or earning to save. Yeah. As we talked about in a, li- a little bit in the previous episode. Yeah. Earning to save and also, yeah, focusing on career capital, personal development, working with a great team where you can learn a lot. It's learning useful skills that are useful in lots of pressing problems. Yeah. So maybe like people like us at 80,000 hours and people who are in the effective altruism community can try to like focus a bit more on creating more capacity, both within these effective altruism branded organizations, but also, you know, we were talking about earlier, creating, making it easier for people to succeed and flourish in these other institutions while, you know, doing a lot of good. And then the people who are taking those jobs can like also try to like take advantage of those opportunities, help contribute to them, help build those communities, and also just do the like very brave work of going and working in an area that unfortunately doesn't have a community yet. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and we talk, or Michelle Hutchinson, our head of advising, talks about, you know, how people should approach job searches a bunch more in the podcast with her and me and Rob. So listeners can check that out if they want to learn more. All right, well, thanks a lot for having this conversation with me, Ben. It's been really interesting. Thanks for having me. If you'd like to learn more about these topics, uh, you should check out a couple of articles on our site. Uh, One is Think Twice Before Talking About Talent Gaps, uh, Clarifying Nine Misconceptions by Ben Todd. And another is How Replaceable Are the Top Candidates in Large Hiring Rounds? Why the Answer Flips Depending on the Distribution of Applicant Ability, uh, one that I wrote. We'll link to both of those in the show notes. And just a reminder that, as I mentioned at the start of the episode, the 2020 Effective Altruism Survey just opened. If you've made it all the way to the end of this episode, the survey is probably aimed at someone like you. So if you'd like to make sure that the survey counts your views on what's most effective, uh, your experiences with the community, and what you're working on at the moment, uh, do click through the link in the show notes and fill it out. If you found out about effective altruism because of this podcast, uh, it's especially valuable for you to register that uh, so that we can quantify our impact relative to other resources out there. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris, audio mastering by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts are available on our site and made by Zachy Ulhack. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.